on their everyday lives apparently oblivious of its dangers. To the bewilderment and fury of the coalition soldiers, traffic often travelled as normal, civilian cars and trucks proceeding headlong into the middle of firefights and stopping only if shot at by young soldiers terrified that the driver might be a suicide bomber. Mystery ultimately enfolded the fall of the regime. Following the capture and occupation of Baghdad on the 9th and 10th of April, no trace of the government could be found. Not only was there no large number of prisoners of war, the usual index of victory, there were equally no captured generals or staff officers, nor, most puzzlingly of all, politicians treating for peace. The Ba'ath leaders and their party officials had disappeared, just as the army and the Republican Guard had disappeared. The disappearance of the soldiers was easily explained. They had taken off their uniforms and become civilians again. The disappearance of the leaders was baffling. It was understandable that, fearing retribution for the crimes of the regime, summarily at the hands of the population, judicially by process of the conquerors, the principal perpetrators and their associates should seek to make their escape. But where had they gone? The American High Command distributed packs of cards, each bearing the photographic image of a wanted man. The distribution yielded results. The owlish Tariq Aziz, Deputy Prime Minister, was arrested. So were a number of other important, if less prominent, Saddam apparatchiks. On the 22nd of July, 2003, Saddam Hussein's sons, Qusay and Uday, both steeped in the brutality against political opponents which was their father's trademark, were betrayed by the inducement of a $15 million reward and killed during a gun battle in the northern city of Mosul. Kurdistan might have been thought an ill-chosen hiding place for the dictator's sons. One of the most extreme Islamicist terror organizations, Ansar al-Islam, had however set up what amounted to a liberated zone in Kurdistan, so perhaps encouraging the two thugs, whom Saddam had hardened to their inheritance by sending them to witness torture and executions, to seek refuge there. The final mystery of the whereabouts of the dictator himself persisted. In the immediate aftermath of the defeat, rumors circulated that he had made his escape to a friendly Muslim country. The rumors were cumulatively discounted. Such stable regimes, Libya or Syria, as might have been willing to welcome him, were also prudently cautious of the danger of offending the United States. Countries where anti-Americanism flourished, such as Yemen or Somalia, were judged too unstable for Saddam to risk his survival in their turbulent politics. The occupation authority in Iraq eventually concluded that he remained within the country, probably hidden by family or tribal supporters in his home area around Tikrit. Frequent searches were mounted without result. A more methodical procedure proved productive. An intelligence team, by working through his family tree, identified the whereabouts in the Tikrit neighborhood of residents who might be sheltering him. On the 13th of December, 2003, a party of American troops from the 4th Infantry Division, revisiting a farm already searched but now with better information, uncovered the entrance to an underground hiding place. When the trapdoor was lifted, a bedraggled and heavily bearded Saddam was found cowering inside. He held up his hands and announced, I am the President of Iraq, and I am ready to negotiate. He was swiftly transferred to American military custody. Saddam's arrest put an end to the last contingent mystery of the war. A greater mystery remained, attaching not to the war's events, but to its fundamental character. 
How had it been possible to fight a war which was not, by any conventional measure, really a war at all? All the components of a war had been in place, two large armies, huge quantities of military equipment, and, that most essential element of modern hostilities, an enormous press corps, equipped and alert to report, film, or broadcast its slightest incident. Beyond the battleground, moreover, the world had been transfixed by a war mood. Governments had been thrown at loggerheads over the war's rights and wrongs. The workings of the great international organizations had been monopolized by debate over the war. Populations had marched against the war. The world's religious leaders had uttered the direst warnings about the war's outcome. The international media had written and spoken about little else but war for weeks before, during, and afterwards. Yet, when war engulfed their country, the people who ought to have been most affected by it, the population of Iraq itself, seemed scarcely to give it their attention. American cheerleaders had predicted that the invading army would be overwhelmed by the gratitude of the liberated once it appeared on Iraqi territory. Opponents of the war, particularly in the media, puzzled at first by the lack of opposition the invaders encountered, consoled themselves with a prediction of their own that when the American army reached Baghdad it would be resisted block by block, street by street. There would be a Stalingrad on Tigris, and the West would regret that it had ever flouted high-minded opinion by mounting such an expedition. In the event, the invaders found the population largely absent from the scene of action. There were no crowds, either welcoming or hostile. There were scarcely any people to be seen at all. In the countryside the mud-hut dwellings of the cultivators displayed at best a scrap of white flag flapping from a stick, as a sign the occupants recognized that a war was in progress. Often they gave no sign at all. Herders and ploughmen wended their heedless way about the landscape. Mothers shooed their children to shelter at the sight of military vehicles. Camel drivers stood to gaze. Otherwise the dusty countryside lay empty under a pall of apparent indifference at the world crisis that had come to visit Iraq. Civilian unwillingness to engage with the war was matched, and more than matched, by that of the rank and file of the Iraqi army. Saddam commanded some 400,000 men in uniform, 60,000 of them in his loyalist Republican Guard. Few were well trained, and most of their military equipment, once of the Soviet first line, was now antiquated. The coalition high command nevertheless expected them to fight. Its soldiers, particularly the younger men who had never been in battles, were spoiling to meet the challenge. They were to be largely disappointed. Here and there they found spots of resistance, Iraqi infantrymen who manned their positions, tank crews who exchanged fire. In most cases, as the invaders advanced to places where defences had been prepared, however, they found them abandoned, often clearly in the last minutes before action threatened. Pathetic scraps of evidence of occupation lay about, pots of rice, packets of tea, newspapers, discarded clothing, and even abandoned boots and weapons. The owners had fled, not to better positions or to regroup, but to go home. Western military intelligence officers identified two waves of desertion, the first following coalition air attack preceding the advance, a second as the sound of approaching coalition armor was heard. By the time the coalition forces actually appeared, the Iraqi soldiers were gone, to disappear into the civilian population and not to be seen again. The phenomenon was disconcerting. 
particularly to military theorists committed to the view that war is animated by politics. Such theorists expect the defenders of a country under attack to resist because the attack threatens the essentials of their society. They accept the reality of collapse, such as that which overwhelmed France in 1940, but associate collapse with objective military events, such as encirclement or deep penetration of a flank. Failure to fight altogether defies their theories, particularly their central theory that military structures are an amalgam of army, government, and people. The circumstances of Iraq in 2003 demonstrate that classical military theory applies only to the countries in which it was made, those of the advanced Western world. Elsewhere, and particularly in the artificial ex-colonial territories of the developing world, usually governed as tyrannies, it does not. Iraq is a particularly artificial construction. Three former provinces of the Ottoman Empire, each inhabited by disparate populations, ethnically and religiously separate from one another. The central and southern regions are respectively Sunni and Shia Muslim Arab. The north, though Muslim, not Arab at all, but Kurdish. The Ottoman Turks had not treated the three regions as a unit, but ruled them separately. It was the British, exercising a League of Nations mandate, who had attempted to unify the country and bequeathed their shaky creation to the successor governments. It had worked erratically at best, and only by according dominance to the Sunni of the centre. Monarchy had been supplanted by dictatorship, eventually, in its most ruthless form, that of Saddam Hussein. Saddam had tested his dictatorship to its limits. Had he been content merely to modernize, spending his country's vast oil revenues for the benefit of all,